So if we're going to get to zero shipping or we're going to have green fuel by 2030, we have to move much faster than we are today. And we got to wrestle these alligators to the ground. The shipping industry can decarbonize itself. It really can. If the political stars align and the right demand signals can be emitted, even the most ambitious zero-carbon scenarios are no longer limited by the technology or the commercial readiness of zero-carbon fuels or infrastructure or yards. These are all within reach. At least they are according to the slew of papers and studies being pumped out as the world's government sit down next week to consider the crucial question of just how quickly shipping can decarbonise. The industry, however, remains uncertain, unconvinced. There is still a massive gap between the rhetoric and the reality in shipping. Shipping is awash with zero-carbon commitments, coalitions, pilot projects, green corridors and studies, all charting the industry's alignment to the 1.5 degree temperature increase goal of the Paris Agreement. But a fraction of them, barely breaking double digits by my calculations, have actually committed solid science-based targets to action these promises. Green corridors are currently a paper exercise, and dual fuel capability is essentially a hedge bet on the part of owners. A vessel theoretically capable of burning sustainable fuel is not going to generate any value, environmental or commercial, from that capability until these fuels are produced in a genuinely sustainable form and become widely available, with an acceptable mechanism to bridge the inevitable cost differential against conventional fossil fuels. That much is pretty simple, we know that. And yet, and yet, that's still not the whole picture. Because real progress is being made. Shipping ton miles have increased 40% in the past 15 years, and yet total CO2 emissions from shipping have decreased 14% over the same period. In all other transport sectors, the opposite has happened. Even without access to sustainable fuels, a carbon price or anything approaching regulatory clarity, the shipping industry has quietly pulled off a minor miracle of efficiency. So, as the governments of the International Maritime Organization sit down to map out how shipping realistically decarbonizes itself between now and 2050, I'm bringing you a special progress report in this extended edition of the podcast, looking at how the industry is changing and where the key blockers to shipping zero-carbon future remain. Now, you're going to be hearing from ship owners, but also the likes of Shell, the World Bank and Class, as we consider where we are in this transition. And I have unashamedly drafted in the expertise of the progressive end of the debate, determined to push the industry ahead. Those ship owners who are telling me that decarbonisation is a pipe dream and political claptrap, and sadly there is more of them around than you may think, they're not on this podcast. But this is also not an attempt to greenwash. The Debate, my mind, has changed fundamentally. A few years back, we were having the philosophical debate about what comes first, the demand or the supply, the regulation or the investment. That's now over. We're now on to the difficult detail of how to catalyse investment and overhaul the infrastructure of a global industry. As Maersk's head of energy and transition operations, Simon Berghoff, explains, we have moved on in this debate. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I, I would say that it's, Anyone telling you that there's still a chicken and egg problem hasn't really been paying attention for the past year. Uh, there is no chicken and egg discussion anymore. That, that's done. You know, the discussion around should we first have the fuels or first have the ships, that's over. The ships are coming in. 
and they're coming in in a steady stream. I mean, not just mask. It's it's, it's far broader than that. Uh, of course, we have our first methanol ship coming in Copenhagen in September, right? So, so just just that example, and it just the the the, the nineteen ships are, are coming over the, the next two years, and that's just one company. I think you know when you look at the the other books, etc. No one no one can claim anymore that they have to sit on their hands and wait for what's going on, uh, and including including the fuel the fuel supplies. So so there is an element of de-risking. There are very heavy investments that are needed right now. And and that element of de-risking was by leaning out and going beyond this chicken and egg discussion. Maersk, of course, are one of the front runners in all this. And of course, a cynic could write them off as an anomaly. They're not. There is real progress to report across the industry. And I'm not just talking about the now dominant dual fuel order book or basic efficiency measures being demanded by regulation. As Andy McCarran, the Maritime Performance Services Hub Director at Lloyd's Register explains, there's been a shift in the conversation that ship owners are having, certainly with their class counterparts. I think the majority of people that we're talking to and engaging with are really sort of focused around these four drivers, which is, you know, firstly, clarity, secondly, targets, thirdly, commitments, and then fourthly, readiness. Um, and if we, we break those down and we look at clarity, it is really around what we're looking at in terms of the adopted and proposed regulations. Um, targeting emissions from shipping and there's certainly clarity still required around some of those um, key drivers. I think what we're seeing also uh, a necessity for clearer targets as well uh, both on an international and national uh, emissions targets setting and levels Um, but what we are seeing is more corporate pledges or net zero pledges which is you know companies now you know taking some really strong positions around the direction of travel that they wish to go in inside shipping and the adjacencies to shipping which is sort of you know uh, providing that interconnection and then lastly i think you know one of the other key drivers is around readiness um you know as we said sort of technology and infrastructure readiness and some of the conversations that are being had now are becoming more concrete i think rather than powerpoint um, which is an encouraging sign and i think we're seeing more people sign up to some of those initiatives as well so progress is being made we know that and yet we also know that even amongst the progressive companies, the ones that are signed up to the 1.5 aligned programs and are happily investing in dual fuel capabilities in the hope that regulation delivers a market down the line, that there are concerns that too many of the big questions remain unanswered. When Shell published its latest All Hands on Deck report, which was research and written by Deloitte, they acknowledged that progress had been made. But they pointed out what was self-evident to everybody in the industry. Namely, that the magnitude of action and investment needs to be stepped up. Here's Dr. Alexandra Ebbinghaus. She's the general manager of decarbonisation at Shell Marine. I think what the what we find also with regard to the report is that there is a strong willingness to to decarbonise. That it's seen as a problem, and that people want to move ahead. I think the biggest Problem, overarching problem the industry faces is a lack of a compelling business case to do so. And what is your business case? Your business case is either you make, you have a customer demand, you make more money, you have an offer people want, or you're mandated to do it. I mean, it's like IMO 2020, you know, everybody believed it was a good idea to, from an environmental point of view, but without the mandate, it wouldn't have happened. 
So, so really then when we look at, so what is the customer demand and what are people seeing? Then when you reflect back to the six elements I identified in the report, you can also almost, you know, divide them into those two aspects. Mm. So, so when we look at what can help this customer demand, it's the aggregation, the book and claim. You also have the green corridor idea, which is really to showcase that it is possible. You know, and then you have the, the supporting elements of, you know, where's the infrastructure, where's the fuel coming from, where's the yard capacity, you know, where's the technology aspect to actually help uh, develop it. And then you have the regulation as basically, you know, the, the missing element of how to move things across. And here we come to the crux of the issue. Yes, there has been progress, but it is still nascent. It's not enough. In reality, the distant prospect of any meaningful political agreement is being routinely used as a pretext for widespread inaction, or worse, outright greenwashing, as companies attempt to keep up the pretense of progress amid growing uncertainty and the likelihood of a very expensive, delayed, zero-carbon transition that's going to be regulated by a patchwork of national regimes. We'll get into the regulation in a moment. But I bring you back to the problem that there is still a discrepancy between the rhetoric of zero-carbon ambitions and the reality of the industry's willingness to invest beyond the potential to decarbonize later on, when the commercial conditions are right, possibly. Some 47% of the current order book is alternative fuel capable in one form or another, and that number decreases to 60% for orders placed during 2022. So yes, this is an investment in capability but it's an investment in capability rather than commitment to switch to a zero-carbon fuel. Shipping is effectively engaged in an expensive zero-carbon hedge bet, and the longer that bet is held, the more expensive it gets. Environmental groups estimate that each year of delay in tackling the carbon emissions problem adds an extra $100 billion to the total cost of shipping decarbonisation. Industry surveys tend to be self-selecting affairs that skew towards the progressive players. But even here, the industry's hesitance to divest away from fossil fuels is pretty clear. So what are the blockers and what's holding the industry back? Here's Shell's Dr. Ebbinghaus again. It still comes back to the business case, because even if you order a dual fuel vessel, the fuel, the alternative fuel is going to be several times more expensive than the fuel oil. So we are talking about an effective carbon price, abatement prices over $300 per tonne of CO2 saved. That's a lot of money. And therefore, when you then have to look for volunteers from a point of view of cargo owners who are prepared to pay that, you're going to a very small subset of your carbon cargo owners, which means that you really cannot grow that very quickly. Mm. And the danger I see is, from a blocking point of view, that the steam goes out of the system. You know, instead of more and more customers coming up, if, if there isn't any movement, you know, you're just going to always, you know, you can't really grow the market very well. And then we have the regulatory aspects coming in. But if you look at, <laughs> we really like the progress being made by Fit for 55, you know, to show that you can have a basket of different measures, that you have an ETS, 
that you have, you know, a fuels quality standard coming in. But 2% in 25, you know, 6% in 2030, you can meet that very easily with LNG, of course, with fossil LNG. It is not, and it's only targeting something like 15% of global fuel demand. So it's not going to be a game changer. So if you don't, if you cannot move that across to a global basis, I'm worried about stagnation. Now, clearly, that's a political hurdle. And the context of MEPC 80 likely happening as you're listening to this is pretty key. But it's not just a question of globally agreed targets. There is a commercial imperative to change here. And that requires people and companies to move beyond the basic lowest common denominator form of regulation and actually do something. Here's Simon Bergelf again. So that, for me, there are, there are a couple of elements that are quite important that require at least a shift in mindset from this industry. Um, when, you're, when you're used to, to only using a, a residual product and a waste product as your main fuel, and you turn to actually a refined product, then you have to also change your way of uh, getting the supply of that product. Uh, and that means that when you're turning to green fuels or even to biofuels, uh, you are likely to have to have a, an engage in a very different discussion with the fuel suppliers than when you were taking something off their hands that, frankly, no one else really could use. Uh, and that, that means that, that also from a negotiation perspective and a commercial perspective, uh, you're going to have to lean out a little bit more and, uh, and look at longer term contracts and, and making sure that they have the ability to make the necessary investments because you have that offtake that they need and that you're willing to maintain that offtake for a longer period of time. So while we're today quite used to buying and selling on the spot market for bunker fuel, that's one of the elements that is likely going to change for the near future. And when the green fuels then become more widely available, and, and, and maybe you know in an ideal world we only have green fuels, then you, might have, you may revert to the situation that we actually have today. But there will be a period of time where you have to change your relationship to your fuels provider. One of the discussions that has changed dramatically is around technology. Research and development funding is clearly still important, but there does seem to now be this growing consensus within the industry that the ability of tech, be it in terms of engines or infrastructure, is no longer going to be the blocker it was previously considered. Here's Andy McCarran again from Lloyd's Register. So I think we broke this down um, using what we call the zero carbon fuel monitor, um, which is something that we launched through the maritime decarbonisation hub, which really broke it down into sort of three readiness levels, as it were. First of which was technical readiness levels, you know, associated with future pathways. The next was investment readiness levels. And then thirdly, community readiness levels. And I think what we're seeing is it's still early days around some of the technology readiness levels of um, both immediate energy saving devices, energy saving technologies and digital solutions on voyage optimization for the existing fleets. And then also the medium term aspects around future engines, um, you know, future fuels um, and how those are going to sort of um, propel our ships, whether it's through internal combustion engines or whether it's through fuel cells. Um, but I think what we have seen is more projects um, now uh, being signed up to. Um, I think, you know, the engine manufacturers are certainly, um, you know, stretched in terms of the number of fuels that they're being asked to look at, whether it's methanol, whether it's ammonia, whether it's hydrogen. And I think, you know, the clarity that we talked about before and, and I think down select of some of those options will be critical 
if we're going to get some of these engines, you know, safely and efficiently deployed within the sort of 2026, 2027 timeframes for projects like the Castor Initiative uh, and, and other initiatives like that, so that we can then look at de-risking those technologies in operation. That de-risking is essential because it's what the entrepreneurs, the chip owners are looking at to understand how and when they make their investments. Most are still hesitant given the lack of regulatory clarity, but many are ploughing ahead regardless. One of the most ambitious owners out there in this regard is Alexander Savaris, the chief executive of CMB. Look, I think we've made progress on on, uh, three fronts. One, there's a clear willingness from our customers to look into low-carbon solutions. Definitely. Two, there's a clear availability today of capital wanting to invest in these low-carbon solutions. And I think three, on the technological side, either the technology is there or there's a credible pathway towards it. Which I think these three things um, are big breakthroughs from, you know, let's say from the COVID times. After 2019, I think this is what we've achieved as an industry. What are we lacking is availability of fuel in large quantities. And that's where I think uh, our industry will have to focus its attention and uh, work with others to accelerate the uh, molecules that will need to uh, you know, provide our vessels with clean solutions uh, in the coming years. And so uh, from technology and capital, willingness you know, to look into it from our customers, we're now moving to let's find the fuel. Because if we find the fuel, then the only real barrier to low-carbon solutions will be the price. But there, uh, governments will help. This is what I'm really feeling, uh, you know, on all continents. Everybody's talking about contracts for differences. All kinds of schemes are being set up. Um, so I think uh, that's where we are. And that's not just platitudes. Alex is one of those investors putting his money where his mouth is and investing directly in ammonia projects, specifically in Namibia, where he's looking at everything from the desalination plant, the solar park, the electrolyzers, the ammonia factory. These are not the traditional shipping investments that we are usually talking about. But getting access to the fuels and having a stake in the fuel supply chain is what it's going to take. I personally don't think we need uh, a lot of extra capital for the technology side of things. There's enough money available to do it, either coming from people like us or from uh, you know startups uh, that are investing in clean tech. We don't need money for technological advances. We do need a huge amount of money to produce the clean fuels. You know, Richard, I'm sorry to be simplistic, but I'm trying to make things a bit... No, but I, I, this, this, is, this is the way I see it because we've gone through this process of, okay, something needs to be done, but the customers are saying, you know, go away, you know, it will take another 15 years. Now, all my customers are asking, if you have a clean solution, bring it to me. So that's great. We didn't find the money, we found the money. We didn't know where the technology was, that's true. You know, five years ago, we still had to develop these engines. And But look at what's, what's being developed now. I mean, as I said, either the technology is there or there's a very credible pathway towards it. So for me now, we're coming back to the chicken or the egg discussion. Uh, and that's the only argument people give against everything we're doing around hydrogen and ammonia. They say, oh, there's no hydrogen, there's no ammonia. So fuck off. Let's wait for another 15 years. And that, in my book, 
is the toughest nut to crack because it's also the biggest investment. That, of course, all leads us on to the elephant in the room, or more precisely, the 175 member state government representatives in the room at MEPC 80, deciding on the revised global strategy for decarbonisation targets. Simon Bergolf from Maersk is very much in the optimist camp. He believes that the IMO tends to work best with its back against the wall, and it's fair to say it's never felt pressure like this. The realistic scenario suggests that there will be very few happy with whatever comes out of this pivotal meeting. But there has been a convergence of opinions uh, amongst governments who previously never even considered accepting a compromise. They are moving into the central ground now. There is hope. We do see a change. And we do see some states that, that maybe haven't really taken a position before willing, are, being, are now willing to take a firm position, and not only for a high ambition, uh, and, and that makes sense, you know, uh, there's, there's this saying saying that the worst thing you can do with an objective is set it too low because then you might actually reach it. Um, and, and that's very much the feeling, right? You have to have a zero in 2050 because that's what, how you're going to then build those measures up against. And if you don't have a clear timeline, as you said, the measures you're going to build are just not going to be adequate. Um, so for Maersk, the most important element is obviously the zero in 2050. Anything else would, be, would, would really be unacceptable. Um, uh, frankly, I'm not too worried about that. It may be a question of formulation, but I'm not too worried about that happening. Uh, but the second element is these intermediate targets. We can talk about that. I think that's going to be a dis- difficult discussion. But more importantly, for our certainty and the certainty of the fuel providers, um, it is the element around the timeline. So when do we actually have these measures in place? I don't think we're going to get any detail on the measures. But if the IMO has a date that says by 2027, you have to have adopted a market-based measure of some sort, a basket of measure, uh, economical incentive, then we can then go into the details uh, for the next years and get and make that happen. And I don't think that timeline is unrealistic. I think, Richard, uh, there's a big agreement. A deal can be made, but as always, is uh, now the question is, what will we do with the money? It's a big pot of gold. Eh? Uh, One billion tons of CO2 uh, times $100 is $100 billion. So, uh, you know, we'll have to give something to these so-called third countries. Uh, we'll have to put something into an R&D fund and then who's going to manage that. So that's unfortunately now the, the big debate. When I follow this quite closely through our Ship Owners Association, through EXA uh, as well, uh, I think there's consensus to go for a CO2 tax. Now the debate is what are we going to do with the money? That question of funding is going to be key. Forget the headline 2050 targets for a moment. The real fight is over the technical measures on a fuel standard, which will pass, market-based measures where the majority want a simple levy, but a China-backed coalition are effectively resisting. And then the real fun starts with the question of where the money goes and who controls it. According to the World Bank, revenues from a potential carbon pricing mechanism for shipping should be spent in an equitable way with more funding options for developing nations that include spending revenues beyond maritime transport. Now, that's controversial in some quarters, but here's the World Bank's transport specialist, Isabel Rochon, to explain why that is so important. Okay, so, of course, the main objective of a carbon price is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from ships, and that is very clear. But then revenues can be a very useful byproduct. And that's because they can make the transition both uh, more equitable and also more effective. 
Um, but of course, that can then only be achieved if revenues are used strategically. And what do we mean by that? So in this context, for us, it means distributing revenues to support climate action and um, also equity. And that's actually what we're discussing in our latest report. And uh, we think that there are three critical dimensions or questions, if you will, um, related to that. So firstly, what should the money be spent on? Uh, then who should have access to the money? And on what terms could the money be accessed? And we think that it's possible to design uh, a distribution framework which has something in it for all countries. So on the one hand, we acknowledge that shipping's full decarbonization requires a lot of investments, and these could be partially mobilized with the help of carbon revenues. But then on the other hand, and this is just as important, we also need to account for the special circumstances of the most vulnerable countries, of the least developed countries and small island developing states. And in practice, this could, for example, mean reserving a dedicated share of revenues for these countries. And if we now think that revenues were managed by a dedicated fund, this um, could imply shielding those countries from competition with um, other countries, for example, more developed countries who have more capacities. Um, it would also imply broadening the spending options beyond maritime transport. And this could include, for example, um, financing climate change uh, adaptation activities. And the reason why we're suggesting to broaden the spending options beyond maritime transport is because some of these countries are likely going to have um, quite limited opportunities to spend carbon revenues on maritime transport alone. And here, the, the quite obvious example um, is landlocked countries. Um, but then we also discuss um, other examples in the report. Um, and furthermore, we also show that spending mar beyond maritime transport can deliver even greater climate outcomes because it's quite unlikely that all of the most cost-effective climate opportunities relate only to shipping. So essentially, um, what it comes down to is where can the money be spent realistically and where is it needed the most? That, of course, leads us back to the IMO and what happens at MEPC 80. Setting at least a 2050 net zero emissions target with ambitious goals for 2030 and 2040, alongside the introduction of a carbon price by 2025, well, that's going to help the shipping industry chart a course to a green future and significantly reduce emissions. But this isn't just arbitrary politics. The clarity here is essential. Here's Rico Salgman from the World Bank to explain why. Yeah, so what we need is clearly certainty. I mean, without any clear decarbonization pathway, there's no clear demand signal to the market that zero carbon fuels, which we talk about, will be needed anytime soon. So this is the conundrum global shipping is stuck in if IMO does not come to an agreement on two things, raising the current level of ambition and the setting of interim targets, which will describe the pathway to decarbonize the sector down to 2050 or the desired date. So if we think back to 2020, when the sulfur limit in marine fuels was reduced to 0.5% globally, the modification of refineries, for instance, and ultimately the availability of low sulfur fuels was rolled out only after the IMO agreed that ships would be required to use those fuels. And we think that the same applies to shipping's decarbonization. Without regulatory certainty, we cannot expect the private sector or the public sector to invest in shipping's decarbonization at scale. So in contrast, setting a strict and predictable target and adopting effective 
measures and along the, along the way really can unlock a lot of opportunities, for example, related to the production and the supply of zero carbon fuels or greenhouse gas fuels. And, and this, from a World Bank perspective, can benefit many developing countries. So at the bank, we've started with pre-feasibility studies in some of our client countries, which investigate the feasibility to produce the candidate zero carbon fuels, such as green ammonia. And when we now look at the economics of these projects, we often find that the cost of that final delivered fuel is highly sensitive to the cost of capital. And that kind of brings us back to the um, discussion we had earlier about a market-based measure. So in that environment with high interest rates, the risks involved in first-mover projects, and of course the returns private capital would expect, concessional finance might be needed to bring down the cost of the final product. So this means narrowing the cost gap between conventional and zero carbon fuels from two directions, not only through a carbon price on the fossil fuel, but also through supporting investments into the production of zero carbon fuels with those carbon revenues. So if we want to bring down the cost of the zero carbon fuel sustainably, using revenues for that purpose presents actually a very interesting avenue to do this. Inevitably, those revenues are highly politically controversial, and not everybody believes that the money raised will or could ever remain ring-fenced specifically for shipping's decarbonisation project. So at that point, it all starts to sound a bit like shipping is being targeted as a climate cash cow, and this is all just a tax on shipping. But that's not how Musk sees it. It's, you know, if you are a first mover... The last thing you want is for such funding to go to people that have been sitting on their hands for the past 10 years. So what the World Bank, and I think it's a very wise step to actually put it in the, in the hands of an organization like the World Bank. There's no need to reinvent the wheel here. There's no need to hire 400 people at IMO. This works. There's also no need to say all the money needs to be tied to shipping. I mean, frankly, uh, that, that, that's just unrealistic and it just won't progress what needs to be progressed. We need to look at our OPEX. And that's where, you know, the work of the World Bank comes in because they can actually make sure that these investments go to, to production of green electricity in some of, some of the developing nations. And they stand to really benefit from this. If they can leapfrog their energy transition with, with the money that comes from a, from a shipping levy, that would be fantastic because we're all going to benefit from it. They're going to benefit from it and we will have access to green fuels in areas that, where we need access to them. Uh, so there's absolutely no need to to earmark it, to shipping or anything like that. The, 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 you know, what we have in common with all these new fuels is the, is the feedstock, which is green electricity. So that's what it needs to go to. We're going to be covering the ideas on how to spend a carbon tax and what the industry looks like as a result later in the year in our next special edition podcast on this topic. We're also going to be inside the MEPC 80 meeting next week, bringing you insight and commentary as the debate develops. And if you haven't already finished reading our recent decarbonisation special report, which should get you up to speed on everything you need to know, now's very much the time to download it. Or, if you're going to be down at Elbin Embankment next week, there will be hard copies there to guide you on your negotiating position. Russia, I'm very much hoping you've read it. And China, if you want to have a quick chat about the nuances of why a carbon levy works better than the alternative, feel free to stop me and have a chat next week. For now, though... My thanks to all my guests this week and their contributions, and thanks to you for sticking with us to the end of this extended edition of the podcast. And to the governments inside MEPC80, please, be 
Be ambitious. We are all counting on you. Goodbye. <laughs>